I'm Laura Herberg, and this is Curiosity, where listeners ask questions about Detroit and the region. Travel around Detroit, and there are countless private clubs, some that look like they have no windows, others with openings protected by iron bars. Look closely, and you might find a logo on some of these buildings, names like the Hellraisers, Soul Stars, or the Black Syndicate. It's the sign of a motorcycle club. Highland Park resident Nick Harrell says he's noticed these clubs while driving home from his job at a rock climbing gym in Eastern Market. And I'm wondering if, kind of how long have they been around? What's the history of these motorcycle clubs? What happens in a motorcycle club? The fact that it seems behind closed doors just kind of sparks a curiosity. For this episode of Curiosity, WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter answers Nick's question by taking a look at the role bikers play in the car capital of the country and in the Black community that makes up the majority of the population in the city that put the world on wheels. I'll let Quinn take it from here. The road to that answer leads to a dark, squat Detroit building near Highland Park where streetlights bounce off the chrome of the half-dozen Harley-Davidson motorcycles parked in front. This is the home of the Black Syndicate Motorcycle Club. It's one of as many as three dozen biker clubs in and around Detroit, though experts vary widely on the precise number. Here, several men in leather lounge near one with a white beard, wearing a worn vest emblazoned with the words, National President. They call me Take Cover. He says bikers give each other rider names, in part to limit any chances of retaliation from rivals. But Take Cover says he helped found the Black Syndicate about a half century ago to create a refuge from the violence he'd already seen. I served in Vietnam, you know, went over, did my time, I got wounded over there, came home, uh, some of the other guys that was in the Korean War, and they was bikers, and we decided we just form a brotherhood club. Something that we could ride and enjoy each other. A family type thing. Take Cover says those who fought for freedom find it on the grips of their handlebars. And that's where we started out at, to release our stress. I had problem with the wives. Get on my motorcycle, take a nice ride, and get chill out, and come back, my problem solved. He says the club also doubles as a kind of safety valve. I tell these guys, say, hey, when you go to work, and you have a problem on your job, and you might be done spent your last dime, you just come down to the clubhouse and chill out, and just talk to your brothers, your brothers and your sisters. Take Cover says, like many motorcycle clubs, the Black Syndicate's family extends to their neighborhood, helping to cut grass in overgrown areas or donating to charities like veterans groups. But he says there are also rivalries among clubs that can turn deadly. It was a shootout. We called all the presidents of the clubs here in Detroit together because we don't want this in our city. It's our city. It's a motor city that saw blacks create their own lane in the biker world. About two years after riots enveloped Detroit in 1967, a rebellion many say was driven by African Americans fed up with attacks from white racist police officers, a group of bikers created the first all-black club that eventually spread nationwide, the Outcast Motorcycle Club. In the documentary film Outcast Forever, members like this one tell the story of black riders banding together in the face of some racist white biker clubs. Segregation was very strong then, and 
that it made us feel this was our family, this was our thing, away from the segregation, away from the um, racism, you know, because we were doing our own thing. The film paints an impressive picture, all black writers in all black clothing rolling through towns that members claim had never seen such a thing before. Even decades later, Detroiter Andre Seawood says black motorcycle clubs retained a reputation for being tough and partying hard. Seawood says he decided to find out for himself when he joined some friends for a night out at a biker clubhouse. It's hidden behind these bushes and trees or whatever, and then there's a guy standing in front of a wrought iron gate or whatever with an AK-47, and I was like, what am I, <laughs> what am I going to? But Seawood says he was reassured by someone who regularly attended biker club parties, his sister. It's a safe space. That's the way I got it. I mean, my sister, I know she was going. I was worried. And she made that clear. Nothing's going to happen there. I mean, in terms of violence or anything like that. Because of the armed guards <laughs> that were there and the sense of, uh, you know, we're here to have fun, not to get involved in any violence. There are clubs where danger is a real factor. What's known as the one percenter motorcycle clubs have members in Detroit and across the country that have been convicted of everything from murder to drug trafficking. They appear to be the exception overall in terms of crime. More common are the massive group rides many clubs take to raise money for charities. Others, like Detroit's untouchable riders, even welcome those who have barely been on a bike. When I first bought my first Harley, I didn't know how to even ride it. And I kept thinking I knew what I was doing until I burnt the clutch out on the bike and they gave me the nickname of Clutch. He says untouchable riders draws members from many walks of life, government employees, business owners. But Clutch says they still share something with every other motorcycle club. A biker lifestyle framed by a love for the open road, the wind in their face, and an unshakable trust in their fellow riders. Just take the time out when you get a bike. Look around you on a hot summer day in Detroit. There's a thousand of you out there. And you feel okay. I didn't have people, I didn't broke down on the side of the road. A guy pulled up on me on the same bike I had. He said, I see a brother. He need help. And it make you feel good. Clutch says that's part of the biker lifestyle too. And even after a half century since segregation drove Detroit's black bikers to create their own club, that lifestyle keeps rolling on. For Curiosity, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter. Coming up, Quinn talks to the member of a Christian riding club. That's after this short break. I'm Ann DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. Okay, we're back. And I do want to let you know that this next interview contains a description of a suicide attempt. So if that's something that you would like to avoid, you can do that by skipping ahead four minutes. Bikers say they are not always tied to a brick-and-mortar clubhouse. There's also riding clubs where members just join to hit the road together. Take the group Broken Chains, for instance. It's a Christian riding club that cruises through Metro Detroit and to all points across the state and country. 
Lansing-based biker Johnny Van Patten tells Quinn that his personal journey stretches from broken chains to the rough so-called one-percenter clubs. My dad died when I was 10 years old in a motorcycle accident. He was part of a 1%, one of the most notorious ones in the nation so and in the world. But I grew up in that lifestyle. So all his brothers kind of brought me up. And I've been riding since I was five years old. So I've been doing this for about 50 years. One percenters, um, you know, there's a lot of politics that you got to really watch out for. Who you approach, how you approach, who you can and can't talk to. Like one percenters, anybody with a diamond patch, you ain't going to just walk up to them and say, hey, brother, you're not their brother. It's a good way to get snatched up by somebody that's standing by them. Respect. You always take your glasses off, your glove off. You introduce yourself as your own name, not your riding name. So I would be like, hi, my name is Johnny Joe. I'm with Broken Chains. That's how I introduce myself. And then they, if they ask who's broken chains or where, you know, why do we get the right to wear these? Because you can't just wear a patch in some states. They'll come take it right off your back. So if you don't have clearance from some of the one percenters that run that state, then you don't belong. You're talking about one percenters, so that means that roughly 99% of the other clubs are not like that? There's your day riders, there's your, you know, your mom and pops, your, your church riders. We got a group of people from our church that ride now. So we did a charity ride in Flint recently. It was for a fallen officer. There's probably 700 bikes that rode on that, that charity ride. And then we ended up at thousands of bikes. And now you had everybody. You had all the big ones. And I won't say their names because I don't want to put them out there and have them coming after me. But all the big ones were there. And some of them weren't getting along. And it, and it was a little bit scary. But then you have thousands of people that are getting along. What you hear about bikers is probably true in some clubs and in some way. And if you don't know, you're probably best off not asking questions. It's a lifestyle that you're invited into. If you came with this microphone up to certain people, you'd probably see some prospects carrying you off somewhere and probably taking that from you. That's the one percenter lifestyle. Um, somebody like me who's got nothing to hide or not doing anything illegal, not, not into that lifestyle any longer. I stand proud and tall as who I am. I'm, a, I'm a, a biker who's in Christ now. How'd you get from that to riding with a Christian biker club? For me personally, I fell as far as I could fall. I couldn't get no lower in life. I had become a person that I vowed I'd never become in my life. I seen it all. I drank probably a half gallon to a gallon every day for 25 years, you know. Did as much as an ounce of cocaine a night habit. That type of lifestyle over the years really wore me down. And I ended up hanging myself in a garage October 19th, uh, 2007. And that was where it happened for me. I heard this little whisper in my ear and that was when I met God. And I don't know how to explain that to people. There was no booming voice, no angels singing, no shining lights, none of that. But I knew I was in the presence of something greater than myself and greater than this world. And I don't know how I got out of the situation because I was literally hanging from a rafter because it, it was a bona fide miracle for me. And I got out of that situation. Then I got clean and sober. Um, you know, I had turned myself in for a crime that was five years old at that point. Um, went to prison for 10 years, took sobriety and recovery with me into the prison system, became a facilitator, and started teaching men what I had found out. Um, so for the last 15 years, I've been t- 
teaching men how to make better decisions with their lives and kind of changed my life around because I was a hardcore criminal. I grew up with drug smugglers and cartels and 1% lifestyle. So to go from the gang banging and the biker gangs and the cartels to being an ordained minister and a motorcycle missionary riding around the country letting people know that change is possible, you're talking opposite ends of the scale. So with broken chains, you're still living the, the biker lifestyle, though. That's the testimony, and that's what we do as Broken Chains members. We ride around letting people know about that. We're Christ-centered in, in recovery, so all the debauchery that you get with, with your typical, what you really see of, of the bikers and having a good time, we have a good time in a different way. So we're, we're not drinking and smoking and carrying on and, and doing the things that you know are of the world. We're doing Jesus things. And we do them to an extreme because we are bikers in recovery and we get together, you know, we praise and worship and we're, we're open about it. You know, I got patches on here that said, these are my church clothes. When people see me in normal clothes, they don't even know what to think. They're like, are you on the court or what? Because this is how I am. Matter of fact, my pastor rode here with me. Um, he's a new biker and it's kind of neat to see my head because I belong to a big church. And they see me all the time as the biker dude. Now my head pastor's a, a biker, and he's starting to embrace the lifestyle. And it's kind of neat because he's kind of like a little kid learning all these things. If you had all this bad stuff and it's associated with motorcycles, then why go back to riding motorcycles? Two wheels in the wind. Um, and again, freedom to ride. When you're by yourself and your thoughts on a bike, it's a different aspect of things. I, I get closer to God every time I ride out on a backcountry road somewhere. So it, it doesn't, there's no prerequisite to be a biker, but there is a lifestyle that you need to learn about when you become a biker. Because when we show up in the thousands, we're not looking at patches. We're not looking at your color of your skin. We're not looking at your financial statements. We're looking at two wheels in the wind and we're looking at a biker. That was WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter speaking to Broken Chains writer Johnny Van Patten. If you or someone you know may be having suicidal thoughts, you can contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. On a very different note, in our last episode, we answered a couple questions about the giant tire on I-94, and we received a couple comments from some of you. Tammy in Wyandotte wrote to say, I want to take a picture by the tire. Amazing story. I always wondered if that was a real tire. And two people wrote in to say that they actually got to ride the tire when it was a Ferris wheel. One of them was Frank from Traverse City. The other was Glenn Maxwell, who wrote us to say, In 1964, I went to the World's Fair in New York City and rode the tire Ferris wheel. And when I moved to Detroit in 1967 after college to work at Burroughs Corporation, imagine my surprise and joy to see the tire every time I drove to and from the Detroit airport. Tammy, Frank, and Glenn, thank you so much for writing us. You've been listening to Curiosity, a production of 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. I'm Laura Herberg, the executive producer of this show. Thank you to Nick Harrell for asking his question, and thanks to Quinn Kleinfelter for answering it. This episode was produced by me with mastering and additional mixing done by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Will Sessions. Thanks to WDET podcast manager David Lyons for production support. 
WDET's digital team is Dave Kim, Jenny Sherman, and Sophia Joswiak. Curiosity is driven by your questions. If there's something that you're curious about related to Detroit, go ahead and ask it at wdet.org slash curious. 